Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. Hey everyone, it's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Health Connect South Radio Show. This week on the program, we sat down with Deborah Carrier, founder and CEO of Twice as Nice Uniforms, and Michael Hellerstein, Director of Regulatory Affairs and Quality Systems for Geovax. Twice as Nice Uniforms is a company that's using an innovative approach to fighting infections spread by health workers using an antimicrobial fabric that's combined with a more fashionable approach to scrubs and healthcare worker uniform design. Their scrubs are better looking and use high-tech materials to help providers maintain better comfort levels in both cool or warm environments that can be run into in the healthcare environment. Coming up, check out Deborah as she talks about the need that Twice as Nice Uniforms fills. Everyone's excited about my uniforms. I'm, I'm really, it's really game changing. The uniforms look like nothing we've ever had out there before. So people are excited about that and it's fulfilling a need that has not been met in the past. Geovax is a company that's been working on developing effective vaccines for HIV and more recently, Ebola. Michael shared some great information on how their cool technology works and how they're aiming to prevent these deadly diseases in the future. Here's Michael with a quick introduction to the work they're doing. Check it out. Geovax is a biotech company developing vaccines against HIV and Ebola. In the future, we're also looking at other indications, but right now our primary focus is on these two indications. We've been in the HIV field since 2001 when the company was founded, and we've more recently started working on Ebola. Both of these pathogens are very well known. HIV, of course, is the fifth or sixth leading cause of death in the world, depending on the year, is a massive epidemic and a huge burden on both developed and developing countries countries. Ebola, as we learned last year, is a fast-moving, extremely dangerous pathogen. And with the increased urbanization in Africa and the increased globalization of the world, poses a major threat to health around the world. We've stemmed the current epidemic of Ebola, but we need to be prepared for the future. So my company, with its technology involving DNA vaccines, modified vaccinia vaccines, which are viral, and virus-like particles, we have a very unique and potent technology against both of these pathogens, as well as potentially others. We are working on developing these vaccines for HIV, where we're in clinical trials, and for Ebola, where we are showing proof of concept in animal studies. Not only the death toll, but just the, the effect on communities, whether in Africa or whether in New York, is, is huge. So if, if we were able to make a difference against HIV, that would be, if, if you're talking about me personally, amazingly mm. fulfilling um, and something that I, that I personally would be proud of for the rest of my life. Um, Ebola, of course, the, the, the same thing, right? We, we saw the devastating impact in Africa we saw the, the panic when it showed up in the United States. So to be part of a team that creates a solution that prevents that from ever happening is truly an inspiring goal. Stick around. We got the full interview with Deborah Carrier and Michael Hellerstein coming up next. Good morning, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on the Health Connect South Radio Show. 24th episode already. 
And uh, I'm joined in the studio this morning with a guest co-host, Jay Schaefer from Health Connect South. Good morning, CW. Glad to be here. Diana Keough from Sherwick Media Group. My normal co-host is traveling now and uh, out doing business or whatever she may be doing. <laughs> Vacationing, perhaps. She just moved, so then maybe they're up to that. Uh, but at any rate, I'm glad to have you here in the studio today, Jay. Thanks, CW. And uh, I was looking forward to today's conversation. One of the topics that we've covered uh, on some levels in the past is related to um, hospital-acquired conditions and then also uh, tackling you know, overall global health and, and fighting infections. And, and so today, the experts that we have in studio are tackling those issues from a couple of different directions. I'm really excited to be talking to them. I've got Deborah Carrier. She's the founder and CEO of Twice as Nice Uniforms. And I'm looking forward to talking about your solution for uh, tackling hospital-acquired infections. So thanks for taking some time, Deborah. Thank you for having me. I've also got Michael Hellerstein. He's the director of Regulatory Affairs and Quality Systems for Geovax, and they're a cool company here in the Atlanta area that is using cool technologies to be able to tackle um, developing vaccinations for some serious diseases, one of which was spending a lot of time in the news recently, Ebola. Um, obviously, they're uh, also going after HIV as well, and uh, sounds like they've got some cool approaches to um, uh, impacting both of those and some others. So uh, thanks for taking some time. I can't wait to hear about it. Well, good morning, CW, and thank you very much for having me on the show. It's it's a pleasure to be here, and it's a great opportunity to be able to tell a little bit of the story of our technology. It's, it's truly exciting. Yeah, I think folks are going to be intrigued by hearing about how you're going about it. And so, Deborah, I'm going to start with you. Um, tell me about your background, because I know you're a health provider, and um, over time you kind of felt like there were some ways we could do th some things better. So take me through your clinical background, and then we'll kind of then tie it into what you're doing today. Yes. Um, I was a healthcare provider for 37 years. I was also a CPR instructor and a part-time fashion model. So I took all three of these together, um, and I recognized a couple years ago that um, there were some issues in the healthcare world with our scrubs, and nothing had really changed since the 1980s as far as the design of scrubs went. Um, I had spent most of my career being too cold in my, in my <laughs> yeah, office, yeah. and then you have the other side where half the office is cold and the other half is hot, and I realized that this was happening in all medical facilities, especially in hospital settings. Um, a lot of times they keep the temperature 60 to 63 degrees for um, the equipment needs to be that cold yeah. and also for some infection control and just wear operator um, comfort. So you have half the office is cold and half the office is hot. <laughs> So that's what started me down this this path was because I just wanted to do something so I wouldn't be cold all the time. Um, so as a solution to that, what healthcare workers do is they bundle up. So yeah. if you look at a typical healthcare worker, they have on their thin cotton scrubs, and then they either have on a fleece jacket over them or a long sleeve t-shirt under them, which number one is very uncomfortable, and number two does not look professional at all. And it also is against OSHA regulations in some cases. I did not know that. Yes. I remember I, as you were discussing that, I, I my work was done in uh, cardiovascular intensive care doing open heart recovery. Mm -hmm and then working in a recovery room and what we wore were the zip down hooded sweat jackets that's that's right. how we tackled the cold mm -hmm. con con environments there in the unit and and down in recovery and going into the OR even right um, and all of the people that were scrubbed in um, unless they had the you know the whole gown and everything but the people that were working in the OR suites and mm -hmm. walking around in the OR and 
recovery room all had on, just like you described, either, right. either both the long sleeve mm-hmm. shirt underneath their scrubs mm-hmm. and a jacket over. Uh, those Back in those days, we didn't wear fleece. We were wearing the just your sweatshirt materials, but I'm sure right. that's just as happy to carry an infection from this bed to that one. Yes, there's a lot of controversy with that, but there are some studies out of Europe a few years ago, and now we're starting to have some more studies here in the U.S., and um, they're really looking at what is growing in the healthcare workers' clothing and then being, you know, carried from one room to the next. Um, So with all those things in mind, I started traveling and looking for um, different kinds of... um, fabrics to use for this. And I found a very high-tech fabric that is temperature regulating. So what it does is it cools you if you're hot and warms you if you're cold. It's very thin. It's also antimicrobial and moisture wicking. So once I had that, I thought, well, this is the perfect solution. And um, so what I did is I decided to make it a removable liner that goes under the scrubs. That way it gave the wearer a choice of whether to wear it with the liner or without. Um, And while I was at it, I thought, well, as long as I've gone this far, why don't I just go ahead and redesign the scrubs? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's where my fashion background came in. Um, And if you look at most healthcare workers, they just don't look very nice. Scrubs aren't the most flattering <laughs> exactly. attire. A little frumpy. Exactly. And, you know, in, in medicine, we have a lot of highly educated, very, you know, smart professionals, but they go to work in their wrinkled pajamas, you yeah, know? that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, why do we have to do that? So um, I worked with a, a fit specialist in Manhattan, and we came up with a solution to it. They still look like scrubs, but they're more tailored, they're more fitted, they look more like... Um, um, uh, just a more tailored, um, I don't know what the word is for it, fashion statement. Right, right. So they, you know, they're flattering. A little bit more now. flattering, yeah, yeah. That's what I was going exactly. to say for your figure or, you know. Right. Fits your body, not just this giant mm-hmm. square. Exactly. Kind of look like the talking heads right. only in scrubs. <laughs> so now you have this liner that's pretty much undetectable because it's very thin. It doesn't add bulk. Um, and it's underneath the tops and the bottoms, and then you have a very professional look from the outside. So this this uniform that you're wearing right, right. now, um, mm-hmm. folks will be able to see it when we get the photos up. Um, but um, when I look at it, it looks it looks almost satiny without mm-hmm. being as quite as shiny as satin. But it right. has a satin look to it. It mm-hmm. looks like it, if I were to touch it, it looks like it'd be very soft. Um, and talk about how the you, you mentioned there's a liner that's removable. How does it how does that work? Is it uh, snap in? Does it Velcro in? How does it It snaps affix? in. Okay. And um, quite frankly, everyone I've talked to who has them, they don't take them out at all. But um, you can take them out if you want to. It snaps in and out. So if you chose at work to just, you know, not want to wear it, it takes 20 seconds just to, you know, snap them out and, and off you go. Um so with the with the with the liner, the the purpose of that is to give it an extra level of thickness. Is that the main purpose yeah, of that for the cold environment? It's for the cold, and it's also moisture wicking. So okay. those people who are hot, it's also going to keep you fresh all day long. We're we're speaking with Deborah Carrier, founder and CEO of Twice as Nice Uniforms, and we're learning about how they're using the fabrics that they've chosen, um, combined with a little bit more eye for a, a nice looking uniform to pr- give healthcare providers, uh, particularly those that are working in uh, point of care delivery areas like in the hospital or um, in a physician's office, to give them a uniform that not only looks better but also then 
works with the things that we know that will help limit the transmission of infection from one person to another, namely being hand washing, effective hand washing. Um, but not only that, but having fabrics that are apparently more resistant to fostering bacterial growth and, and so forth. Talk about the process that you went through to try to find the fabric. I mean, what was that conversation like going in? I guess you knew you wanted it to be something that was temperature regulating, whether it was too warm or too cool in the in the room you're in. But then I'm curious about how you found one that would be less inclined to foster bacterial growth. It was very challenging. I knew exactly what I wanted, and it was. I traveled all over the southeast, basically, um, just asking everyone and basically got lucky um, with the factory in, in North Carolina. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, when I walked in and told them what I wanted, they said, oh, I think we can help you. Now, they, at that time, the fabric was not anti-micro- antimicrobial, but that's just a, you know, a, a technique that they can put on at the end. It's a silver that they apply to it. I see. So ends. how long does, the, does that kind of a treatment last when you think about washing the garments? Typically, they're, uh, they last up to 50 washes. Okay. And when um, when one goes to purchase a pair of these scrubs compared to what you would go, I, I've had to do that, obviously. You know, I mean, clearly the hospital will sometimes, if you work in the OR in particular, they'll have scrubs that they provide out of the OR. But for the rest of us, they would have to go and buy them. How does it compare cost-wise for something like this comp- you know, to uh, your standard blended material, which seems like most people buy, or all cotton? They're definitely more expensive. Um, Uh, several things. Number one is they're going to last you a lot longer. And this is a different way to look at scrubs. Mm -hmm. Um, In the past, we've all looked at scrubs as we're going to throw these away in a few months because they stain, they fade, they shrink. Um, My fabrics do not do that. They don't stain hardly at all. Blood comes out of it. Chlorhexidine comes out of it, which is a a huge seller with the nurses. Um, Also, they don't shrink and they don't fade. So this is more of an investment scrub. This is a scrub you're still going to have two years down the road, and it's still going to look amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, the other great seller with this product is that you don't have to iron them, which is is very big. With oh, that's nice. Makers. Jeez, yes. I mean, when you had the ones that were heavy in the cotton content, mm-hmm. I'll tell you what. I mean, it was look a little wrinkled uh, showing up for work. Yeah, I was yeah. I, I was Mr. Wrinkly. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there's there's a lot of those, and there's a lot of studies now that they're um, from the patients, and the patients notice how their healthcare workers look, and that's a lot of how they judge what you're doing is, is Interesting. just by the appearance of, you know, what you have on. So, so it is important. It's very important. Well, and when you feel like you look good, you, you carry yourself different. You act a little different, too. Well, you were a clinician for a number of years, mm-hmm. obviously. What was the process like for you transitioning over into kind of, now I'm a business owner and I've got to come up with this plan. Talk about how it was to leave what you were doing for, you said, 30-some-odd years, right. and now you're gonna, I'm going to go start a company. Yeah, it was um, daunting, <laughs> um, but exciting. I, I just knew that this is what I needed to do. And when I started down the path, everything just fell into place. So I knew it was meant for me to do this. Um, I immediately you know, told my boss. I'd worked at the same office for 23 years, so that was quite a, you know, a hard thing to do, to leave the office. And I haven't left completely. I do work one day a month still as a dental hygienist just mm-hmm. because I can't leave my patients. Um, but yeah, there was a big learning curve there. Um, luckily, I've had wonderful mentors and just a lot of people who stepped up and just wanted to hold my hand and, and help me out. And um, just been very lucky with getting partners that all, you know, fill a void of something that, you know, I couldn't do. So it was, it's been 
fabulous, really. It's worked out very well. So what did the family do when you said, hey, you know what, I'm gonna do, I've got this great idea. I'm going to make these uniforms that look good and they help reduce the rates of infection. And they said, that is awesome. Mm-hmm. I have an incredible <laughs> family and they really did oh, say well, that. There you go. <laughs> they really did. Everybody was behind me and this has actually become a family affair. My son is my graphic designer. He did our logo and does all my, um, you know, my website and everything with that. Both my sisters work for me and then I employ my nieces and nephews to help with the warehousing and moving boxes. And so it really, truly has become a, a family affair. With a lot of startups, they say the idea is the easy part. Right. So what are the challenges to get your product to market? Um, just getting the word out there. Um, it's a product that is so different and mm-hmm. game-changing to the, the scrub world that you know people, they need to see it, they need to touch it, they need mm-hmm. to feel it. So that, that's been the toughest part of it is just getting the word out there as much as I can. Mm-hmm. I saw you were at the... Dental Hygienist Association, and you put on the, your social media, go up and talk to this person and ask to touch right. it as well. So that's one of the... <laughs> yes, that was one of the things I learned early on. As soon as mm-hmm. I started wearing these, everyone wants to come up and touch you. Mm-hmm. And it, it's great because they do feel amazingly soft, unlike any other scrub that's mm-hmm. that's out there. And um, you you have to get used to people wanting to touch you all the time, but once you get past that... <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, um, the model has to be ready for that. <laughs> right. But once you get past that, people realize that. I have learned that if I get people to try them on, they buy them because they just are so different than anything Yeah, sampling such a big portion of it. Mm-hmm. This is such a high-end um, product. Are you looking at certain channels to help uh, yes, fit with that image? Um, yes, the, um, the higher-end dental offices, um, cosmetic dentistry, cosmetic surgery, plastic surgery, mm-hmm. um, cardiology, those those type of offices are really, where mm-hmm. it's really important that they look really nice in their offices. Mm-hmm. That's and spas, things like yes, that. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. We actually have a lot of channels. There's a lot more people out there wearing scrubs than, than you think. Now, we were talking earlier about how there's some, some work been done out there, I guess, taking a look at what we're wearing and, and how that comes into play as it relates to infections. Are you intending to talk with hospitals on some level to try and see if we can get them to adopt? Because clearly, um, from one of our earlier conversations, I think it was the Hangenics show that we did, um, where they mentioned uh, in that conversation, I was talking to as many as 400,000 people die from a hospital-acquired condition. Not all of those infections, but many of them are. One of the, you gave somewhere close to 100,000 people a year are, are dealing with that. So, is there, a, is there a plan to perhaps engage hospital systems to maybe for their ORs or their clinical areas to see if maybe they would be interested in adopting something like this to try to tackle those nosocomial infection rates? Yes, I actually am um, meeting with the CDC next week, and we're going to start looking into that. That There's, there's so many different studies out there now that um, we're looking at right now trying to decide exactly how to approach this. But um, last year, 2014, in the U.S. alone, there were 1.3 million hospital-acquired infections. 99,000 of them resulted in death. Now, I have to believe personally that some of that has because of, you know, it being carried from patient to patient on the healthcare worker's clothing. Mm. Um, so, yes, we're, we're addressing that. It's just in the early stages at this point. And don't different uh, colors have different significance in the among the scrubs? 
In some hospital settings, mm-hmm. they do in some offices. And that was another thing that this patient survey came up with is that the patients really like when mm-hmm. their um, healthcare workers are color coded. Mm-hmm. So they know when someone comes into their, their room, is this a nurse or is this a doctor? Um, and it makes them. Feel I remember better. what a big deal it was when our unit was going to change colors. Right. <laughs> we had to be, get consensus. We had to, it was mm-hmm. a big thing. It's a huge thing. <laughs> <laughs> but that's more product that you have to stock and keep in inventory. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yes. So, oh, you're um, switching colors. Okay, we can handle that. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, it, it is a big thing, but it's becoming more and more the norm, especially in, in larger hospitals. You went to New York to talk about fabric. Is is that where your product are manufactured? Where, where are in they New being Jersey made? is where they're being manufactured. That was one of my big goals is to be able to manufacture in the U.S., and it's not an easy thing to do. Um, but so yeah. far, we're able to do it, and I hope to keep it here. Now, where are you in the... In the in the business, are, are you you're you're live and we're putting it out there now. We just finished our second production run, um, and with the second second production run, we added the men's styles, a couple more lab coats, and three more colors. Um, so the next run, we'll add more colors and more sizes at that point. Um, so we're just we got product the end of January, and we're doing quite well so far. Um, there's been a lot of. Um, and where can a listener buy their? Uh, twice, twice as, as nice, nice uniforms.com mm-hmm. um, is the best place to get them. I also am doing a lot of shows at the local hospitals, Emory, mm-hmm. and um, at a lot of the trade shows and stuff around town. And what about other channels are you exploring? We are looking at retail. Um, mm-hmm. I think we're going to try a, a one retail store um, just to see how that, that channel goes. But it's mainly just going to be online. and Through your out. website or mm-hmm. are you twice looking nice at other uniforms. Amazons or other... Yes, we're considering that, but not quite yet. Okay. I guess once the demand goes through the roof, as people start talking about it, you're going to have to start looking at some of those wide-focused channels Mm -hmm. like, like that. Well, the good news about Amazon is you can get your product very easily. The mm-hmm. downside is they also advertise other competitors exactly. there as well. <laughs> you might so also think a, about... Yes, yeah, so and they do. That's part of the recommendation engine on there. Mm-hmm. So it's a two-edged sword. Right. It's easy to get up on Amazon, but then they might put... And especially if people are price conscious, they'll put other exactly. 10 other people with exactly. lower priced ones up there. So higher end. So, yeah. yeah. That, that will be down the road. Mm-hmm. This is the first time I've heard about trying to tackle the rate of infection, for example, with what we're wearing. Are there other – where do you stand in the marketplace? Are you one of the first that's doing this as far as, far as treating your fabric with um, – you, you mentioned like a, a silver treatment of some kind that it has antimicrobial properties. Mm-hmm. That's the first I've really heard about people having fabric that would f- help resist infection right. or you know bacterial growth. Where do you stand in the... In the last year or so, there are more. There's a couple more scrub companies who do have antimicrobial finishes now. There's also some that are doing water-resistant, fluid-resistant fabrics. So the the fun thing is with all the new technology with fabrics, I think this is just going to keep evolving more and more, and we can bring more of that stuff to the healthcare world. And I would assume that some over, over time, as it becomes a little bit more mainstream, that... Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the cost of the fabric for the manufacturer will begin Absolutely. to come down a little mm-hmm. bit so so the price point can maybe drop. Yes, it, it definitely will. As we grow, it will definitely be able to come down some. Well, that's really, I mean, that, that's, that's very cool. Nobody came up with this when I was schlepping around in the, <laughs> the big pajamas that you talked right. about. 
Yeah. What the, would be- um, the slogan for our company is bringing comfort to those who comfort others. And that was oh. a big part of why I did what I did is the healthcare worker's job is often a thankless job. And it's a, it's a tough one. I mean, mm. there are days where you might not be having such a great day, but you got to go in there with a smile on your face and treat your patients. And a lot of times it's a, you know, a life or death situation. So what I wanted to do is just when I started this is just bring comfort to those people, make make the healthcare worker feel good, you know, about him or herself, and carry it from there. And it'll reflect in their behavior if they look exactly. nice. That's part of it too. Exactly. I know uh, it was Emerson that said that if you be a, build a better mousetrap, the world will be the path to your door. But we know <laughs> he didn't know anything about e-commerce. Right. Um, so what is your what would be your ideal scenario? What would it do to find association to like dental? association or some group where you can get a large volume? What, what type of... Yes, that's actually happening right now. Um, mm. Like I said, I had several different channels that I could have gone down in the beginning, and we explored several of them. Um, the dental world right now is really embracing me, so oh. we're following that path right now, and I do have um, really the entire Dental Hygienist Association, the National Association, everyone's really supporting me, doing a lot of articles. And oh, that's great. So that's where we're going to start for right now and then branch it, out. And it's there. one of the keys for startups. you got to get that volume. Yeah, I was going to say, get, you get more volume up, then right. pick one uh, silo. Mm-hmm. If you can go deep in that, you can get your volume up, get your cost down. Exactly. And get celebrity endorsements mm-hmm. or some things like that. Exactly. Or you're, you're, you have the background, so you're mm-hmm. a good spokesman for for the product. Right. Got to get Dr. Oz wearing your scrubs <laughs> on this show. We have a couple celebrities on our list. <laughs> <laughs> you want to drop some names? Uh, well, not yet. Oh, okay. No. <laughs> We've been talking with Deborah Carrier, founder and CEO of Twice as Nice Uniforms, learning about the fabric that they've developed uh, that uh, comes in a nice fitting package. It's a nice looking uniform. She's wearing one here in the studio. And we also talked about the fact that uh, the fabric has been treated to be behave with the antimicrobial properties, easy for me to say, and um, to try to tackle the the issue of hospital-acquired infections. As as Deborah was talking about earlier, quite a number of people around the nation that end up with a uh, an infection when they go to the hospital, and she's trying to tackle that uh, with a very novel approach. Uh, that brings me to my next guest, Michael Hellerstein of Geovax. He's the Director of Regulatory Affairs and Quality Systems based out of Smyrna, which is right here in the Atlanta area. And before we went on, we were talking about some of the ways that you're going about trying to tackle things that uh, uh, obviously have spent some time in the news. We talked about Ebola. Uh, clearly, that uh, wasn't on anybody's radar, or at least the main population, until, oh, my God, it's in America. Now, it's, it, now suddenly it's our problem. Uh, but then also you're developing uh, uh, strategies to take on uh, a vaccination that will be effective for HIV as well. So I'm really interested to hear about your solutions and how you go about them. Because from what I understand, one of the ways that you do it, from, I guess my familiarity with vaccinations is we take an organism and um, we develop a vaccine that's using uh, partially, it, it, it's got some live uh, material in it that that will stimulate a response but won't make us sick per se but you're able to actually develop molecules or or particles that emulate a vax or a virus for example make our body think oh it's a virus and develop the response to it without necessarily using the virus itself is that am i on the right track there that that is true but first uh deborah from the perspective of a healthcare consumer and from the perspective of someone who's developing medical products that will be delivered by people wearing scrubs, I want to thank you for the work that you're doing. You have a truly amazing story. Um, and and I, I hope you feel great about the good that you're doing for patients, <laughs> That's really cool, for yeah. providers, 
and 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 for the field in general. Um, I'll, I'll be looking into your products for my lab because in in our lab, of course, we don't have patients, but we have people who are coming in with whatever microbes may be circulating. We got mo microbes in our lab. We don't want uh, what was in your house to be mixing into the experiments. And similarly, we don't want anything <laughs> in the experiments to be coming home with it. So, uh, and, and, and in, in research labs, as in medical offices, there, there are problems with non-compliance because uh, lab coats are uncomfortable. So, so thank you for the work you're doing. Well, thank you. So take me, uh, before we get too deep into Geovax and the work you're doing, take me back a little bit in time with you and your story. How did you get to be focused on such amazing projects that you're working on here, trying to take on Ebola and HIV and other you know, serious viruses like that? Right. Well, I'm sorry to have changed the subject, but just going back to your yeah. original question on the technology. Um, the original vaccines, yes, were, were made from the actual organism. So if you think okay. about the original smallpox vaccine, or if you think about the polio vaccines from the 50s, those are all made from a, a, a live virus. Smallpox, of course, was a, was a cowpox virus. Um, but then polio, you, you had the actual polio virus. But there was no genetic technology at that time. You, you could not take a piece of DNA and put it into another organism. Thanks to all the developments of the second half of the 20th century, we now have that ability. So we started seeing what are called recombinant vaccines, where you take a harmless organism, typically a, a virus that will not cause disease, and then into that harmless organism, you put a piece of DNA from the actual pathogen that you're trying to fight. And there are many, many different examples of recombinant vaccines. One that uh, a lot of people are familiar with are the, the combination vaccines that you get for your pets. So you bring your pet in and you're gonna get a vaccine that covers distemper and rabies and who knows what else. And the way they do that is by taking a harmless virus and putting in pieces of each of these pathogens. Uh, the Geovax technology takes that one step farther. So not only do we have recombinant vaccines that have a harmless vector or the backbone of the vaccine along with a piece of a pathogen, but ours make something called virus-like particles. Mm -hmm. So what happens when someone gets vaccinated with a Geovax vaccine is that that vaccine will go into their cells and it's going to make pieces of the pathogen. But then there's another step to this. And that other step is that these pieces assemble into something called a virus-like particle, which to the host immune system, to the person's immune system, it looks an awful lot like HIV or Ebola but is completely non-infectious. And what it does is to raise immune responses that are superior to those that would be raised by simply one or two pieces of the pathogen that weren't assembling themselves. Um, now, the, the veterinary vaccine piece is actually very relevant to my background. Okay. I've mm -hmm. been working in labs since high school. I, I had summer jobs at the veterinary vaccine company. <laughs> After I got out of college, I worked as a molecular biologist, mostly in early drug discovery. So where did you, what made, what made the light go on? Where, have you just kind of always, once you got exposed to these concepts, the, the whole microbiology thing in the world that is invisible to our eye and you started seeing all those things is that where you just you've been sucked in sounds like from from pretty much the get-go 
I think that's right. I mean, I, I got this summer job because, because I was friendly with the daughter of the president of this company, <laughs> but, but, uh, but, I, but I loved it and, and, and knew pretty quickly that that was what I wanted to do for a living. The daughter went away. The love for the, <laughs> for the practice did not, right? <laughs> so so you you got into the the field of microbiology and you started working around a, the practice of developing you say vaccines or making vaccines for for the veterinary world right correct and and so as it relates to you talked about the recombinant vaccine i'm very intrigued how do you what's the process like i don't want to i don't, don't want to digress too much but i'm just intrigued when it comes to uh, putting in DNA, for example, into this organism, how does that happen? And then how do you get it to, I guess, replicate itself to the host of particles that you have to have? To, how, does that, what, how does that work for the person out there like me that's like, what? How does that, how do you do that? You got a tiny little needle and you inject it huh. in. How does that happen? Right. Well, well the, the GFX vaccines are really of, of two classes. One of them is DNA. And the other one is called MVA for modified vaccinia ankara. And mm. modified vaccinia ankara is a safer version of the smallpox vaccine. So the smallpox vaccine that, that is given to high-risk people, for example, people in the military, people mm. under some risk of bioterrorist attack, is called vaccinia. Um, and um, we, we've, we've ended worldwide vaccination against smallpox just because the disease has been eradicated. But... Um, toward the end of the eradication campaign, um, some scientists developed a safer version of vaccinia called MVA, which is safe for use in people who are immunocompromised. So where vaccinia itself can cause some real side effects in someone who has a, an immune system that's not quite as healthy as your average person, um, a, th this this. Atten we call it attenuated vaccine, is, is much safer. It's been tested in more than 120,000 people. So the way we make these vaccines, um, it, it all starts with DNA. So we have isolated, or scientists over the last 50 years have isolated pieces of DNA out of organisms such as bacteria. Mm -hmm. And these pieces of DNA have become just routine lab tools just like ordinary chemicals, just like the instruments we use. Um, we use pieces of DNA for all kinds of different things. It, it's just, uh, just run-of-the-mill work in the lab. Um, now, in the beginning, these uh, recombinant DNA techniques where we were taking one piece of DNA and putting it together with another, these were used only in research. Um, we weren't, no one was actually thinking of using these as therapeutics. But then, um, starting really in the 80s, uh, people started to realize that, that you could use these same techniques to make medicine. Um, and it is that idea that has driven the development of our vaccines. The DNA vaccines are purified DNA. There's a circular piece of DNA, most of it of bacterial origin, out of harmless bacteria. And our uh, chief scientific officer and co-founder, Harriet Robinson, was one of the pioneers of this technique. Then the other vaccine, the MVA that I just described, that is a recombinant virus. So most of it is MVA. Most of it is this safer smallpox vaccine. But we are able to put in pieces of 
Ebola or HIV DNA into this vaccine so that it will make these proteins. And the way that this is actually done, you know, from an outsider's perspective, it looks like someone adding clear liquids to tubes and then putting them into centrifuges and you get these little white pieces of solid and, right. and then it all goes into a computer and you see these little fluorescent uh, yeah. graphs. Um, but that, 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 that is because these, these technologies have been developed over decades to the point where now it's uh, in many cases automated but but very routine. So um, to create these vaccines, we, we, we are using standard techniques in, in biology. Yeah, the, the, the piece that I find interesting that I, I haven't gotten my arms around is how, how that DNA is integrated into the DNA of the organism. And now when the organism goes to replicate itself, it's doing it now with that additional piece that you've put in there Right, it's making right. more more clones of itself that way now with the new DNA con uh, construct, right? Right, that, that that's correct. So, um, we, we in in the lab we would call it cutting and pasting, yeah, and it, and it all is almost literally cutting and pasting. So we 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 have a piece of DNA, um, and into that DNA we'll we'll add specialized enzymes that cut it at a very specific sequence. So um, like the uh, Jurassic Park movie, the original one, where they showed the cartoon where they take the uh, dinosaur DNA and put it in with the... Is it like that? I, I'm sorry. Part of popular culture from... But, their, uh, the thing that it sounds... Based on what you were just saying, the, the, you have, I guess, virus cells in a solution. Is that right? Right. And then when you get... You're adding your enzyme, enzymatic solution to this, and somehow that forces the DNA to get... Inserted is that is that what you're saying? It okay. somehow passes over the 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 cell wall and gets in and that's, no 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 that's the why, piece I don't yeah. understand. Why, why don't we take a step back? Sure. Um, if you imagine uh, that the piece of DNA is a long strip of paper, yeah, um, and then on the left end of it you cut out a little square shaped indentation, and then on the right end of the piece of paper you cut out a triangle shaped indentation, and that that that's your vector. That's your harmless hmm. organism's DNA. Then you take your piece of Ebola DNA, and on one end, you're going to cut out this square-shaped indentation. On the other end, you're going to cut out the triangle-shaped indentation. And then you kind of put the pieces together, and they fit, mm -hmm. right? In your vector DNA, in that longer piece of paper, what you have is something called, uh, so for a DNA vaccine, we would call it an origin of replication. And what that is, is a sequence of DNA that signals to the machinery in a cell copy me, copy me, copy me, so that when, when that piece of DNA goes into a particular type of organism, it gets copied over and over and over and over again. And that's the piece I'm, I'm, I'm how does it cross into the cell where, where that's going to happen? Okay, now, now, now this, this next point is very important. Our DNA vaccine copies itself in bacteria. It does not copy itself in a patient. Right. Our MVA vaccine copies itself in chicken cells. It does not copy itself in people's cells. But what sucks it inside the cell? Because that's where it's got to be replicated, right? The, the what is it, the, would it be the, the ribosomes or the, what, one of the organelles of the cells are going to be doing all that work, right? They're going to they're gonna replicate that. Right. So we, we, with, with the, it's different for the DNA and the MVA. Okay. The, the DNA, in order to get that into bacteria, we, we, we have chemical techniques. So we'll take some ordinary bacteria 
And if you add certain types of chemicals, they'll just suck that DNA okay. in. Okay, that's what I'm at. Okay, that, that, and so I'm like, how does this stuff get? I mean, you've got the DNA out here, so obviously whatever gave you that DNA is probably not feeling really good right now. It's probably mm-hmm. not going to be very viable for replicating itself. You had to kill it to get the DNA, right? Correct. So that's, that's what I found so intriguing is now that you've got this DNA chain, now you can actually, you're saying, with some chemistry actually get the cell to suck that back up again, and now it's in there, and now it's actually going to start running the code. Correct. Okay. And then, then with the MVA, it's a little bit different. That, that is a live virus, so um, it is able on its own to infect chicken cells. So <laughs> if you drip some of that onto some chicken cells, they'll just get infected. So, you know, we, I, I remember when I was in high school back in the 80s, um, the big rise of awareness of HIV, for example, and now what is that? We're closing around 30 years ago or maybe a little bit more that it was discovered and probably around 30 years ago that really blew up in terms of awareness. How do we not have a vaccine today for, for HIV? Well, HIV itself is an extremely difficult pathogen to fight. It infects the immune cells, so it's infecting the cells that should be fighting it. It has this ability to be latent. So as most people know, when someone gets infected with HIV, there may be some symptoms at the beginning, but then even without treatment at all, they're going to go into a period of years when they're not showing any symptoms. And that that is when HIV is latent. It's essentially Mm -hmm. hiding out in the cells of the person. Now, if Um, if it's in the latent phase, can I give it to you? If it's latent, yes. I'm still infectious. You absolutely can. I mean, the, 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 the probability is lower, right? So someone in full-blown AIDS is going to have many, many more viruses in their body fluids than someone in the latent phase. But, yes, that is true, okay. and that, that is one of the major problems of HIV transmission. Yeah, we were talking about that before we went on the air today. Hmm. What is it, one in eight, you were saying? that uh, People have it and don't know it. Right. right. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Or someone like Magic Johnson that's had it for years, right? Right. And 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 I guess that's the question that uh, people are obviously more often than not they're living a lot longer now. I guess the the medications that they have now, what do they call them, antiretroviral uh, right. medications that are able to I guess mute the the effect of the virus on us so that it doesn't make us as sick, uh, or maybe it prevents us from being sick if the drug is working well for me, but. Uh, Obviously, if we can eradicate it as an infection, then we're going to be better off than just treating it once you get it. That is true. And, and antiretroviral drugs have been a, a true blessing for the world. The, these, these have changed the, the epidemic in, in, in many ways. And I, in, in no way do I mean to suggest that, that the antiretroviral drugs are not valuable. They've been incredibly valuable. However, even with all of these advanced drugs, and with all of the advanced healthcare that we have in the United States, the incidence rate of new HIV infections has been essentially stable for the past 20 years, about 50,000 cases per year for the past 20 years. The taxpayer burden of dealing with HIV education and treatment funded by the U.S. government alone is more than $17 billion wow. every year. And these, these drugs, while, while again, they, they are a blessing, they're not perfect. There are a number of disadvantages. Um, only about 25% of people infected in the United States have successfully controlled their infections with these drugs. Mm-hmm. They are very expensive. There's some toxicity. They have side effects. And there is a need for lifelong treatment. I see. Once mm-hmm. you're on them, you never stop taking them. 
Now, do you believe that genomic testing, since it's kind of on the rise now and, and adjusting the way that we prescribe and, and dose medication, do you feel like that will begin to come into play in this arena with treating patients who have viral infections such as HIV that we might be able to say? Because I, I saw something recently on genomic testing that talked about a, a cancer drug. I don't remember which one it was, but it basically the, the finding was that before genomic testing, if you had this cancer, you would get this drug, right? But it turns out that 4% of those people had a very good positive response, well over 60% success rate in that 4%. But the rest of them was marginal at best. Um, now they're able to know, oh, we can do some genomic testing. We'll give this drug to that 4% because we know it's going to work well for them and the other people we have to come up with some other drug. Do you feel like that kind of genomic information will help us do something here? I don't want to digress too much, but I'm just curious. No, no, no. It's an excellent question. Um, the, the answer is, is possibly, but, but not to the same extent I with see. cancer. So with, with cancer, you were looking, cancer comes from the person's body, right? You, yeah. You're looking at specific mutations and genes that lead to gotcha. that cancer. Mm -hmm. okay. With HIV, um, the interaction between the pathogen and the host, the person, is a very complicated thing, and there's all kinds of research going on. So it, it may be that, that someday we are able to do genetic testing and pick an HIV drug or an HIV vaccine based on a person's particular genes, especially <clears throat> their, their immune genes. Um, but right, right, right now, uh, I would say that the, the impact on HIV is unlikely to be similar to I what it you. is for cancer. Michael Herstein of GeoVax, Director of Regulatory Affairs and Quality Systems, or Systems is sharing some amazing information about how they're tackling viruses like Ebola and HIV. And with the HIV virus, from what I understand, there are several different, I guess, strains, for lack of a better way to, for me to say it. Um, for Petitions. example... Yeah, the, the, I guess what we may see more prevalently in the North America and Europe is different than what you might see for an HIV infection in, say, the Sub-Sahara. Is that, is that correct? That, that is correct, and that, that is part of uh, why it's been so difficult to develop a vaccine against mm -hmm. HIV. There is a huge amount of diversity among these HIV strains um, to the point where a vaccine against one will not necessarily protect against another. And it mutates, it mutates fast. So all the time the, the HIV vaccine is changing. Um, this points towards some of the advantages of a, of a vaccine approach rather than drugs. Um, so when someone is on drugs, if you think about it from a, a natural selection perspective, mm -hmm. these drugs are in the person's body and there is strong, strong natural selection on that virus to mutate itself away from being controlled by the drugs, right? Mm -hmm. If you just get a few viruses in the body who are no longer sensitive to the drugs, they, you know, they, they're not rational, but they're essentially saying, I'm gonna outgrow all you turkeys and I'm yeah. gonna take mm -hmm. over. Right. Um, and then that, that uh, virus, if it's, if it's passed on, um, then becomes extremely dangerous because it, it may not be able to be treated with any of the available drugs, um, let alone the ones that are being used in, in that, that particular person or, or the, pers the people with whom that person comes in contact. A few years ago, there were these very frightening reports of these superbugs, these super mm. strains of HIV right. in, in Connecticut. Um, now, a vaccine is a superior approach, we believe, because if you prevent infection, you don't have this problem anymore. If you've prevented infection, and if you created what we call herd immunity, 
where you have a high enough rate of immunity in the population that this virus is really no longer spreading, um, then you're, you're, you're not really worried about the mutations to, to the same, or the, you're, you're no longer worried about these escape mutations to the, to the same extent because you've controlled the rate of infection. I see. You talked about the benefits of the vaccine versus the drug. Is there a quicker time to create a, develop a vaccine versus develop a drug? Oh, no, it's the opposite. Okay. Um, with, with, with a drug, uh, typically you, you are now, – now we've had these, excited, these exciting results with pre-exposure prophylaxis where uninfected people take the drugs. Um, and that's an exception. But in, in general, when you bring an HIV drug to market, what you're doing is you are testing in people who are already infected with HIV. So you get a very rapid readout on what your drug is doing to I the see. HIV gotcha. in that person's body. Um, with, uh, with a vaccine, on the other hand, these trials are huge and these trials are long. Yeah, you got to see if somebody ends up getting sick in spite of the medication. And exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, it reminds me of Intellimedics when they were on the show and they talked about one person's uh, side effect is another person's cure and yeah, vice versa. Right. <laughs> and there's a lot here. They also talked about a finite number of shapes. So when you're talking about the DNA vector and cutting off the square on one and the triangle on the other, fortunately that there's um, this limited number of sizes that you can interact, you know, cut the DNA. And it was all part of their drive towards personalized medicine, which is wave of the future, I think. But back back to the uh, question of versions of HIV. Yeah. Uh, one question we get asked every now and then is, why on earth right. are you working on the version of HIV that's circulating in the United States and in Western Europe and in the Americas, rather than the version that's circulating in Sub-Saharan Africa, given that the epidemic is so much larger in Africa? And the answer is, many people don't know this, but we, we, in certain populations in the United States, the HIV epidemic is raging. It is, it is a huge problem among certain populations, especially men who have sex with men. Mm-hmm. Um, also, on, on top of that, the highest rates of new HIV incidents, the highest rates are among young people. And I this, didn't know this, that. I mean, that's why that's why I mentioned earlier how it's not often talked about in the news. It, when I was young, it was everywhere. We were bombarded with it. Right, and there, of course, there has been prevention fatigue, as they right, say. Right, I guess so. Because um, yeah. it's, I guess, it's faded from the news cycle, so I don't have to worry about it so much now. I guess is the thought from some of the young people, perhaps. Exactly. There's an impression that it's no longer yeah. a problem. There's an impression that if I get it, I just take some of these drugs and everything's fine. <laughs> but of course, that 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 is that is not true. This is a this is a very large and significant problem among certain populations in the U.S. I see. Well, that makes sense. Um, I mean, clearly, you gotta you got to start someplace. And I would imagine if you're able to get a vaccination that will effectively deal with this particular strain, then it's you can then begin to build on that towards the other. Is that is that correct? Or are they just totally almost like independent organisms? No, no, no. That, that, that is exactly right. Okay. So our lead candidate, the, the vaccine that's mm-hmm. farthest along in development, is against the version of HIV that's circulating in the U.S., in the, US, in the Americas, and in Western Europe. Um, however, we have other vaccines in development against the versions that are in places like Africa. Um, and as, as, as soon as we're able, we can also bring these into clinical development. The technology applies across the board. What's the best mm-hmm. guess horizon for when they'll be able to actually be implemented, do you think? 
the the other versions or the or just your, your, your the ones that you're bringing you're, you're working on for the Americas and Europe, for example, the one that you're right. really down the road on. When do you think that people can actually go to Walgreens and get vaccinated <laughs> for HIV? Right. Um, well, we we we, uh, we have already been uh, so clinical trials in the United States go in three phases. There's phase one, which proves safety, and phase two, which uh, is mostly safety, but also focused on effectiveness. There are many different designs of phase two trials, but that's, that, that, that's how ours have gone. Um, and then phase three, uh, often multiple phase three trials that are focused on showing effectiveness and obtaining a license from the FDA. Mm -hmm. um, what we've done with this vaccine is we've been through phase one, shown safety. Mm -hmm. We've been through something called a phase 2A, a small phase two trial focused mostly on safety and immune responses. And we are now actively working toward initiating what we call a phase 2B trial, which is a second phase 2 trial focused not only on safety, but also showing effectiveness in a – or efficacy in, in a larger and higher risk population. So we, we, we are actively working to plan for this trial. We're raising funds for it. And re really, as soon as we have everything in place, we'll be ready to initiate it. Can you tell us about the scope of the trial, how many people, how long it takes, um, just more details about how long the 2B trial, for example, would? Right. Well, we, we, we are still, we're still designing this. Okay. Um, but you're, you're typically looking at something like a, a couple of years. And um, how many people do you end up getting to participate in a trial like that? Um, again, we, we are actively planning, so I, I, don't, I don't want to give any hard numbers oh, okay. here, but yeah. it's, it's, in, it's in the thousands. I see. Okay. And, and it's... At the, uh, I guess clinicians, I guess are are involving people in the trials. Where do you, how do you go about getting the folks to participate? Well, there, there are clinical trial sites all over the United States. Up until now, we have relied on the HIV vaccine trials network, which is funded by NIH. Mm -hmm. um, for this phase two B, we we are likely to need to go to a to a, to a different uh, trial organization because HVTN. The HIV Vaccine Trials Network is focusing on other vaccines that are also very worthy, um, but but our, aren't ours. They're, they're different approaches. Mm -hmm. So um, what, what we will do is to work with a clinical research organization, a company that is expert in running clinical trials, who will then connect us with clinics in areas where HIV incidence is very high. I see. And for you, you talked about going to try to secure additional funding to do the research that you need to do. What's that process like? I mean, are you having success finding the, the funding that you need? Or is that one of the things that we need to talk about today that, that, that we're actively seeking funding resources? Right. We, we are actively seeking funding resources here. And what, who typically would be you, – you mentioned the, some government agencies, for example, and, and, and health agencies out there that would be providing some funding. But are you talking private sector? Where do you, where do you go to, to find such funds? At, at the moment, we are focused on trying to raise money from foundations. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. HIV vaccines are not a very high priority for a big pharmaceutical company. Mm -hmm. Typically, if we were developing a diabetes drug <laughs> and we were ready to go show effectiveness, if our drug looked good, we would have Merck and Pfizer and Glaxo and everyone else banging on our door. Yeah, we want to treat, uh, <laughs> treat the disease. We don't want to prevent it. You right. know? We want to treat it. <laughs> right. Um, but with, with the long, with the long uh, time that it takes to run these trials, um, the big pharmaceutical companies 
typically are, are not going to want to work with a small company until mm. that small company has really shown efficacy. Um, so uh, we, we, are, we are now left in a position where we need to raise a large amount of money for this, this trial. Um, and we are starting to look toward foundations. Because for a company our size, it is, it is difficult to raise that type of money on the capital markets. Mm -hmm. And how does that how does that go? How do you interface with those foundations? You just reach, you have somebody that's reaching out to say, "Hey, this is what we're doing. We're hoping that you take a look at it and and support us." Is that is that the process for you? That is correct. So we're we're, we're working with experts on that. We are um, we're a small company, um, a, a very lean company, and a very focused company. But what that means is that. Um, where a larger company would, would, would have someone who's expert in that on staff. We, 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 don't, we don't do it that way. We need to be lean, we need to be nimble, gotcha. and we need mm -hmm. to be flexible. So we, we, have an excellent, uh, we have an excellent organization that is partnering with us to do this work. I see. And one of the things I know you're working on before we run out of time, I know that you're working on attacking Ebola from a vaccination perspective as well and, um, and, and using some novel approaches in that, just as you, you mentioned some of the ways that you're going about HIV and others that you're fighting. Um, one question that people would ask is, I know that there's already work underway to try to, pr to build a vaccination for Ebola. Why, why start? So there, there are vaccines against Ebola in clinical trials. Uh, we don't yet know whether we're going to find out whether they're effective. And uh, this, of course, there, there's, a, there's a, a wonderful reason for this, which is that the epidemic is largely contained. Um, so without the epidemic raging, we're, we're not, we're not going to get very good data in these clinical trials. Um, but these, the, these, these uh, vaccines uh, clearly have shown some effectiveness in the monkey studies, which, which are a very good measure of whether a vaccine is likely to be effective in people. However, they do have disadvantages. Um, the, most of these vaccines are monovalent, meaning that they are effective only against one strain of Ebola. I see. Um, whereas there are actually three strains of Ebola that can be fatal in humans, plus a, a related virus called Marburg that was mm -hmm. discovered even before Ebola. Some of these vaccines also have safety concerns, um, and they, none, none of them has the unique combination of advantages that ours has. I see. No, no one else is making these virus-like particles in the same way that we do. Um, none, in, in our opinion, there is nothing out there that compares to the uh, combination of immune responses and durability of the immune responses that... Uh, our particular platform is shown. Plus, we have the excellent safety of our modified vaccinia platform. Mm -hmm. And so once you get down the road with your development, then it's possible for you to actually tackle those different strains collectively rather than, as you mentioned, a monovalent approach, which is just going to get one strain at a time, apparently. That is correct. And um, as frightening as Ebola is, from a vaccine developer's perspective, it's actually a much easier uh, pathogen to fight than, than, than HIV um, because the animal models are better. Um, and uh, we, we are able to mimic in animals much more closely a human infection than we than is possible with HIV. I see. And so so what's next for you? I mean, where where, where do you go from here as it relates to the Ebola side of things? You, where do you stand in that process? Where do you think 
you know, where do you where do you think it'll be when you finally get to bring that out and actually start employing it? Right. Well, our, our Ebola vaccine is in animal studies, so we will know soon uh, how, how well it works against infection in animals. Um, with Ebola, the, the regulatory path to approval is not clear. So with a normal vaccine or with a typical pathogen like HIV, um, what you're going to do is exactly what I described a minute ago. You're going to run an efficacy trial and you're going to see if this vaccine is effective against the pathogen in, uh, in a population where that pathogen is circulating. Mm-hmm. With, with Ebola, um, not only is it impractical, but it, it could potentially be unethical to, to run any kind of clinical trial yeah, like that. Yeah, you're actually trying to expose somebody right. to it. Now, yeah. l- luckily, FDA does have other paths to approval for something like this, um, and vaccines against pathogens such as anthrax have gotten approved in this way. Um, so the, but our actual path to approval of a marketed product is not so clear, even though there are options and we're actively planning. Well, w- with our last couple of minutes, if, if, if our conversation here ends up in the hands of somebody that uh, may be a, a part of that kind of a foundation or that may be a, a, a philanthropic organization that, that wants to take part, where do they go to get linked up with you so that they can help move your projects along? Well, I, I would direct them directly to our webpage, which is geovax.com, G-E-O-V as in Victor, A-X.com. Um, and, and contact information is there. And we, we would be thrilled to speak with anyone. So I'm going to have to have you come back sometime to talk more because, I mean, I had to give had to have you give me my... Uh, my Primer. <laughs> my breakdown, you know, get me caught up to speed here so that I can actually conceptualize what we're talking about here. So I took some of the time just trying to get note up on how, uh, how you inject DNA into a virus. But uh, I find this very intriguing, and it's certainly an, a... a an honor for me to be able to be here helping you tell the story about what you're doing because I do believe that the work that both of you experts are 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 engaging in is going to have an impact and it's kind of cool for us to uh, p- potentially hopefully accelerate that for you on some level. Yeah, well, it's neat to be around companies that are making such an impact, uh, you know, for the people in their uniforms and how they're going to perform and also what you're doing to I love the idea of the vaccine versus the drug that you treat something mm-hmm. after they've got mm-hmm. it, you know, prevent it. Uh, if you can do that up front, that's really uh, wonderful, wonderful when that comes to be. Well, th- thank you very much for this opportunity to, to talk about GeoVax and the work that we're doing in our, in our technology. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have this, this opportunity to get the word out, and to, uh, it's always exciting to talk about it. All right, put you on the spot. You have to come back and talk more about what you all are doing. Anytime. All right, cool. And Deborah, thanks so much for joining us, talking about your uniform. I can't wait to get the photo up so folks can see a, a look at what we're talking about. It's a nice-looking uniform, and uh, it's very cool that, uh, that it might actually help reduce the rates that uh, we talked about earlier where people are getting sick in the hospital when they go or, or in the provider's office. Well, thank you very much. I also wanted to mention, too, you can visit my website, twiceasniceuniforms.com, to see the new styles and colors that we have. But we're also in development with an OSHA-compliant dental jacket. And that will be out by fall. I wanted to mention that. Awesome. So we'll have to have you come back and model some uh, oh, new product to. when they come out. <laughs> Thank you. To, uh, to everybody who's made us a part of your day today, we really appreciate you. And turn around and share this, man. I tell you what, man, we, that's the whole thing about this is we're trying to get the word out about all these experts and the cool projects that they're working on. 
how how awesome would it be if just by clicking share you actually help find the solution to the things that these groups are working on so please share it with your networks Jay thanks for taking some time to sit in today thanks CW enjoyed it if you haven't done so already make sure you get out to Twitter to HealthCon Radio link up with us there we tie in with all of our guests when they're uh, present in social media and um, I can't wait to have you all back next week we'll be uh, sitting down with them the healthcare experts here in the in the area at the same time same place we'll see you then Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio.